Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Okay, today we're going to take a look at the second part of Genesis chapter 1. And let me remind you that we're looking at this both from a literal standpoint and from a pictorial standpoint to gain the most out of the lessons that are presented. Okay, let's get going. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself, important phrase, on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and this tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. So next, our dear Lord brought forth what was to be the food supply for all the creatures that he was going to make. Later in the story, man was specifically given to eat that which had life-bearing seed in it. Now, seed is another type or picture of God's word, as found in Luke 8, 11. Jesus, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, 3, said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man spends the preponderance of his time seeking and taking in food that, you know, it has no seed in it, no life. You were either glued to the tube or grabbed by gossip. There are lots of places for man to find spiritual garbage. But God wants the new man to eat that which has life in it. Now, the believer's food supply, if I can put it that way, is God's word. When the church is weak, it is most often the case that believers are on a bad diet. Now, here in the beginning, God seems to have made it clear that man's initial diet was to be a reminder to him of the coming source of life. Not only so, but as the trees of God's planting, that's from Isaiah 61.3, man with good food can bear fruit ourselves. Once cleansed in confession and by belief in the new covering of the atoning blood of Christ, we can be fruitful spiritually. However, by definition, fruit-bearing is a process requiring patience. Check out Luke eight fifteen, As we read and hear, study and learn, and do God's word, it naturally moves with the sap of his spirit through our lives producing fruit after his kind. That's a capital H there. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, 23 It's a supernaturally natural process. You know, standing close to an apple tree and listening carefully, and I've tried this, You'll not hear it groaning or grunting, hmm, trying to push fruit out onto its branches. Unfortunately, though, 
Many believers run around doing just that. What I mean, trying to produce spiritual fruit in their lives. They dash from one conference or big event to another, hoping for, I'll call it, mick fruit. Fruit takes time, and fruit is what distinguishes the disciple. Look at John 15. Now, your takeaway here, there's life in the seed. In order to grow, eat that which has life in it. And as trees of his planting, we can bear fruit after his kind. Genesis goes on. Then the Lord said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. You know, as God made the sun, the moon, and the stars, he meant for them to rule the day and the night, to divide the light from the darkness, to stand for signs, seasons, and provide the basis of our timekeeping. As symbols in Scripture, many scholars consider the sun as a type of Christ. For example, look at Psalms 72.17 and 84.11 and Malachi 4.2. And the moon as the church and the stars as picturing the Hebrew nation. Now, if this is the case, it is instructive that the sun rules the day while the moon rules the night. That's because Christ said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. That's John 9, 4 and 5. And to his Jewish Disciples, you are the light of the world. Matthew 5.14 In this present darkness, all who are sincere believers are also like the moon, reflecting light, if you would. But the day will come when we will be like Jesus. And the Bible says, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun, in the kingdom of their father, Matthew thirteen forty three. Now, when is the moon the dimmest? Remember the moon representing the church? When the earth comes between it and the sun. So it is with the believers and our Lord. The dominion or rule of the church has been best when it fully reflects the light of Christ. Conversely, it can be all but absent when the world gets in the way. As for signs and seasons, recall the wise men from the Orient knew the birth of Jesus because of the star. They understood the sign. It is tragic, however, that people have relied on astrological signs to guide their lives. That was never God's intent, and it is a false, deceitful practice 
which is leveraged by Satan to manipulate the gullible. At best, signs always point to something. They are indicators, not the real deal. The Lord has put the substance and direction for our lives in his word. Though the Magi recognized that a great king was born by observing the star, only the scripture could direct them to the town of Bethlehem, and only the prophetic word could have told them of God's marvelous plan of redemption. As the heavenly lights were to provide the signposts for the creation, so the light of his word provides the parameters and directions to guide our lives as believers, both during times of light and dark. The scripture says, quote, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalms 1, 1 and 2. So your takeaway here, you can only shine upon the world around you as much as you are fully facing the sun. Genesis continues. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves and with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. God's first command to any living creature we see here was again a revealer of his heart. He said, Be fruitful and multiply. How often can we be tempted to picture God as against us or down on us when in truth his desire is for us, for our fruitfulness and fulfillment? He even made the things he commanded us to do enjoyable. We should note also that the living creatures were made according to their kind. In other words, a tuna was a tuna. And a stork was a stork. And tunas only make more tunas, and storks only make more storks. Uh, Of course, they bring baby boys and girls, too. God established the fruitful order of nature. When the order is confused, it becomes unfruitful. For instance, a horse may mate with a donkey, but the result is sterile. Mules don't make more mules. Just as God's word here produced an abundance of living creatures, so it will produce in the life of a sincere believer an abundance of life. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That's John 10. This abundance is not what some preachers profess. It's material riches and perfect health and worldly power, prestige, whether through ministry or the world, by the way. 
If God chooses to bless a person in such a way, well, that's fine. But this abundance refers to far more important things. Out of Ephesians chapter 3, we read that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's Ephesians chapter 3. As God restores a soul, he brings abundance of life, love, and the fullness of himself. This is where the pastures are green and the waters are deep. Check out Psalms 23. This is how a born-again believer's life takes on a beautiful purpose. And so your takeaway from this, God desires a life for you, abundant in his good treasure. Genesis goes on. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, with increasing vigor, scientists are crossing the borders of creation, planting human tissue in animals, mixing animal and human genes, cloning man and animal without regard to the consequences. You can't help but think this is going to be unfruitful, to say the least. We can imagine that they're pretty a genius in altering genetic codes and unraveling mysteries of the human genome, but messing with the natural order, or what the Bible calls proper domain of creation, is one of the reasons the abuso, or bottomless pit, is filled with especially nasty demons. Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper or own domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Genesis goes on. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Like God, man is a triune being. In creating him, the Lord took the lowest part of creation, the dust of the earth, and combined it with the highest possible ingredient, the breath of his spirit. Together they made a living being, or literally a living soul. So man's being is triune in that he has a spirit, a soul, and a body. A man was not designed to die. 
That's one reason why we're frustrated by time. People rush faster and faster to get nowhere in particular. We strive with schedules that are ever more crowded and stress over the confines of time and, more specifically, the time of death. It's instinctively alien and troubling, partly because we were not created for it. We were formed to commune with our Creator apart from the callous demands of an expected lifespan. Now, originally, Adam's spirit was the primary influence upon his soul or character, the spirit being the seat of his will and what we would think of as his deepest part, was in direct fellowship with God, who is also spirit. See John 4.24. But the soul, being created by the combination of both the spirit and the dust or flesh, is influenced by both as well. Now, initially, man's body, though dusty, was without sin and did not struggle against the spirit's control over his soul. This is what the Bible calls being spiritually minded. Quote, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's Romans 8, 6. However, when Adam rebelled against God, just as God promised, he died. First and immediately, he died spiritually which meant separation from God. Secondly, he died physically as well. Now, although 930 years old, he died within the same prophetic day. Refer to 2 Peter 3.8 to substantiate that. Ever since, man's soul has been the pivotal battleground. As his spirit died back with Adam... His sin-filled flesh then reigned over his soul. He became carnally minded, and, quote, to be carnally minded is death. But praise God for the gospel, the good news. When someone responds to the good news and welcomes Jesus Christ into their life, believing in him as the risen Lord and Savior, Christ sends the Holy Spirit into that person, bringing new life to his spirit. And then from that point on, the believer is no longer a captive slave to the sinful flesh. The sincere believer is free not to sin. And with this freedom comes a struggle. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, Walk in the Spirit, And you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, for the flesh lusts or wars against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so your takeaway is, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Then God blessed them. Back to Genesis. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. 
fill the earth and subdue it. Interesting term. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is fascinating. Man was told to subdue the earth. Now, at this point, with no sin in the new creation, the world was at peace. Now, it would seem that this term subdue did not seem to apply to the animal kingdom. In fact, to clarify, the Lord said, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over everything that moves on the earth. The Hebrew word for subdue means to tread down and conquer, whereas the word dominion implies simply a ruling over. Now, some Bible scholars believe this is speaking of a directive for man to subdue the evil spiritual entities that occupied the planet. You can refer to Job 1, 6, and 7. This is indeed consistent with other uses of this verb, to subdue, in the scripture. You can check out Micah seven nineteen on that. Now, imagine lions and tigers eating grass. This was paradise. All was in harmony. There was no food chain. Every creature ate of what grew from the earth. When Christ returns, he may reestablish this order. For Isaiah, speaking of his millennial reign, recorded, quote, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fat lane together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play with the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's all from Isaiah chapter 11. Though man miserably failed in carrying out this command, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, succeeded. On Calvary's cross, he crushed the head of the serpent, Satan, and destroyed the works of darkness. His dominion shall be an everlasting one. Your takeaway? God gave the command both to subdue and have dominion, and he also provided the man to fulfill it, his son. Genesis goes on. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Though the created order as we know it was thus fulfilled, God is ever creative and always at work. And presenting to us the chronicle of creation, he put forth the pattern for his creative or redemptive work in the heart of man as well. It was his divine design. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Very, very good. Now, if your world is a mess, it could be that God has allowed it in order to demonstrate to you his love and goodness. Let the light in. Let the word of God into your dark. Let him separate the truth from the lies. 
and bring your sin to your attention so you can confess and forsake it. Let him produce in you an abundance of life and the wonderful fruit of his Spirit. Let Jesus subdue and have dominion. Make Christ the Savior and Lord of your life. When you do, you'll realize it's a truly divine design. Now may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm and faith to trust him. Look for our next podcast and may you realize more of his grace today.